Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where company founders, entrepreneurs, and cutting-edge thinkers drop in from around the globe to share startup stories, insider insights, and hard-earned success lessons. Now, here's your host, a woman who mastered business by placing heels on the ground all over the world, having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, and who wants you to build your best business future, Allison K. Summers. Well, hey, everyone. I hope it is an absolutely wonderful day where you are. It's a fabulous day where I am because I get to talk with Courtney Lemkeeler, and you get to hear it. Hey, Courtney is the co-founder and managing partner of Springbank Collective. She's going to tell us in her own words all the great things that they do to support investing and really cool businesses that are on a mission. But I also am excited to have Courtney here because she is a wonderful business leader who has her eye on the future. And so we're going to talk a little bit about social change, social shifts, and what we can do in business to be more thoughtful about these trends and about where we are guiding our companies. So with that, Courtney, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Hey, in your own words, Courtney, tell yeah. the listeners what beautiful things you deliver to the world today. Oh, I love that. Um, well, I think I I hope that we are delivering a vision um, for a more equal society. So that that's kind of the really high level thing that I think we wake up every day and feel excited about. Um, we don't do it on our own, though. We do it through a portfolio of incredible founders. So Springbank is a venture fund. Um, we're a $40 million venture fund based here in New York City. And we are a thesis-driven fund. So we are investing in founders and companies that we believe are building for the future uh, and building specifically infrastructure that can help close the gender gap and serve the unique needs of women and families now and into the future. Um, you know, when we think about the opportunity, we get super excited because it is huge. We think it's over a trillion dollar market opportunity. Uh, and in some ways we say it's, it's hiding in plain sight. A lot of the areas that we invest, whether it's around, um, the workforce of the future, the deskless workforce, thinking about the care economy, both childcare, elder care, certain areas of women's health, um, and then areas that affect our home life. So the financial health and well-being of families, um, domestic and household productivity. A lot of these are things that are hiding in plain sight. We're interacting with them every day, but we're thinking of them as sometimes women's issues or family issues or maybe in the realm of nonprofit. And I think what we've seen all of us, you know, in the past few years, certainly in COVID, but even since then with a really tight labor market and the rise of worker power and people demanding something different um, mm -hmm. from workers and from the healthcare system and from their communities is that these are everyone issues. You know, these aren't women's issues. These aren't niche. Um, they are huge. They're huge labor market issues. They're big economic issues. They're top concerns for CEOs that, you know, have hundreds of thousands of employees. So that is super exciting. Courtney, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, why doesn't everybody get it? Why doesn't everybody <laughs> see this train that is coming? Um, exactly. You know, absolutely. Hey, let's just touch a little bit on your background and, and why 
Spring Brink Collective, how you got to this point where you're like, because um, I don't want to say, Courtney, but, you know, looking at your resume, you could kind of write a check to any place. So why, why this at this point in time? Tell us a little bit about that, that founder's journey. Oh, thanks. Um, well, you know, I have spent my whole career until now, which is just over 20 years um, in financial services. So very much a kind of classic New York um trajectory started my career uh, at Goldman Sachs as a, a baby banker, um, had some twists and turns there, ended up doing some really interesting work in different parts of the bank and ended up leaving and going to the New York Stock Exchange um, a bit on a whim. I really felt uh, like something interesting was going to happen and it did. So at the time, the NYC was a nonprofit owned by its members. Um, and we turned it from a nonprofit into a for-profit. We took it public. We did a bunch of M&A. Um, I had the chance to lead the M&A and strategy group. And it was just a really fun and awesome job and, and made me fall in love with fintech and, and sort of important bits of infrastructure. So the New York Stock Exchange, you know, is a really important piece of economic and financial infrastructure. And it had to work well and it had to be resilient and it had to have a future. Um, and I really had the best job of my life, you know, working on that project. Um, and so I've always been drawn to, to these kind of infrastructure questions. You know, after I left there, I spent four years at Marsh, which is, I think, the world's largest insurance broker um, doing, you know, property and casualty insurance as the chief financial officer. Had a really interesting time there, too, was the sort of dawn of insure tech insurances one of the oldest industries there is um, and, you know, was really being beset by a lot of technical change, mostly on the customer facing side. So how do clients buy insurance? And so there's some really interesting changes going on there. Um, and, you know, as I thought about what I wanted to do next, if, do I want to stay in insurance forever? <laughs> do I want to do something different? Um, I felt like I wanted to get back to an environment that was a little bit more nimble and agile and, and was moving faster and I thought about what is an opportunity that kind of excites me the most and feels like some big change is coming the same way a lot of change came to the capital markets and a lot of change came to insurance. Like what else was out there that felt on the cusp of a big transformation? Um, and I kind of looked more at my, my personal experience and thought to myself, wow, you know, I see in my years in corporate um, the efforts to attract and retain women Mm -hmm. And I see that they are not working. Um, uh, I was very fortunate to have a great career and amazing mentors, but it felt that the path was pretty bespoke for me um, and that it was not, um, you know, we didn't have the right systems in place to make that something that uh, was kind of widely available to women, to caregivers, um, because we didn't have the infrastructure that we needed. And you know, the bet for Springbank was to say more people will demand these paths, more people will, you know, women and caregivers will want to stay in the workforce and be promoted, more companies will need them to do those things. And having a mentorship program or having a networking event will be insufficient. Companies are on the hook for this. They will have to invest in infrastructure like childcare support like breast milk shipping, um, like remote and flexible work. And, you know, this was back in 2018. This was before COVID changed everything. But the bet was that the same way that we are thinking about building for a, a huge transition in our energy infrastructure and building for a green transition, 
you know, we, the private sector, the government, insurance companies are going to have to start to build for this social transition, a social transition in which, you know, in almost half of American heterosexual married couples today, the woman earns more than or the same as her husband. 50 years ago, that was 16%. So that, that is a massive change from the 70s. Those people, a lot of those people are still in the workforce, right? I mean, we have like, this has just not been that long. Um, we've got more young women or sorry, women with young children, probably also young women in the workforce now than we have ever had. And so the demands of the modern worker are changing dramatically. And I think there's a huge opportunity to build for that. And that just got me really, really excited. Um, so I'm not a venture capitalist by background. This is, you know, this is all new to me. Um, but I've had a lot of opportunity to, work with companies, invest, you know, at that inflection point of change, invest in tech. Um, and I've loved kind of bringing it to this opportunity, which I think is so exciting and, 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 and overlooked still. Well, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but let's share with our listeners um, a little bit about the collective and you call these companies that you are investing in builders. So can you give us an example of really quickly of a couple of these companies? And again, if you go to um, springbank.bc, you can look under the builders tab and and peruse all the companies. Um, And I know, Courtney, it's hard to pick just a few favorites, right? Like they're all probably great. My children, yeah. (laughs) But give us an example of a couple um, that people might want to hear about or learn about that are doing something new and unique. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I'll give you a few different examples. So, uh, I'll start with one that I talk about a lot. It's, it's the longest held position in the spring bank portfolio. It's a company called wealthy, um, fits very well into the, the sort of career theme of the spring bank strategy and also my own personal experience, which probably is why I was drawn to it initially, but wealthy is a company that is, a kind of digitally and human powered care concierge. And it is sold as a benefit through employers for employees. So what does that actually mean? We know that more and more people than ever are in the sandwich generation. They're taking care of young kids and they're also taking care of aging parents. We know that caregiving behind retirement, of course, is the number one reason why people leave the workforce. And we know that companies struggle to figure out how to help when something goes wrong. So Wealthy is essentially a project manager that steps in for families who have complex care needs at the time that the need arises and handles all of the non-clinical elements of care. So let's say my mom who lives in Florida falls and breaks her hip and I live in New York. I don't really need a week off work. This is going to be a six month journey. Probably what I need is someone who is going to call and argue with her insurance company. I need someone who is going to organize the best physical therapy place for her to go. I might need someone to organize a ride to pick her up and drive her there. These are all things that I would probably be doing at my desk instead of my work, (laughs) right? Because of course, for all of us, families come first. And so there's a really great paper that was just published by Harvard Business School about two weeks ago by a professor named Joe Fuller, whose work I really admire, talking about the return on investment for companies who offer a benefit like wealthy because of the reduction in absenteeism and presenteeism, right? Which means I'm there at work, but I'm not doing any work. Um, And then of course, a reduction in turnover for people for whom their caregiving responsibilities become overwhelming. 
we've all wrestled with our healthcare system in this country, it is a full-time job, right? And so Wealthy is really there to step in and provide that hands-on support that lets people not resign from their job or not resign from their caregiving responsibility, right? They, they want to do the love elements of care. They need help with the work elements of care. So that's a really cool New York-based company um, doing incredibly well and, and working with all of the top branded companies and large employers in this country that you can think of. Yeah. And when you, when you partner with somebody like that, they're experts in what they do. They know how to navigate things and without the emotion, right? I, I love how you talk about presenteeism because um, it, it matters, you know, th those things matter as well as the mental health of the, the employee um, right. and fabulous example. Give us another example. Give you another example at the other end of the spectrum, very young company, very cool company. And um, the also in the kind of career thesis for us, but in a different way. So this is, we, we think there's lots of opportunity to build technology and tooling for careers where women dominate. We know that we've spent a lot of money and a lot of value has been created building tools for white collar workers, tech workers, engineers, uh, and typically men dominate those jobs. There's been less innovation when we think about how do you make the job of a nurse or a home health aide or a teacher better? Um, if you've ever kind of sat and watched a nurse do charting or you've ever watched a home health aide clock in, these are often pretty low tech and paper-based solutions still. Um, we know across healthcare and education, the burden of administrative work has gone up. And we invested in a company called Brisk Teaching. Mm -hmm. and Brisk is using AI to build tools for teachers to make their workflows much more efficient. So it's not student-facing AI. It's not AI teaching the kids. It's looking at the 50% of time that teachers spend not teaching, doing grading work, doing paperwork, filling out forms. And Brisk is trying to reduce that amount of time that teachers spend not teaching to give them more time back in the classroom, return them to you know, a better quality and a more satisfying job, which face it is the reason why most people go into teaching to begin with, right? They're not in it for the money. We know that. Um, so Brisk is a really, really cool company um, that just launched last year and already is in the hands of, I think, hundreds of thousands of teachers who are trying it out, using it to make themselves more efficient um, every day. And so we love building uh, companies, building in those use cases. I love the example of, you know, looking at these professions that are uh, particularly, you know, female dominant and being overlooked. Like, how do you make all of it much more efficient and effective um, and and profitable, right? Profitable yeah. for these these ladies. I mean, I always think of the example of, you know, if you are at a hotel, you might give a tip to the bellman who opens the taxi door for you because you're looking him in the eye. And, but people don't give the tips to the maids who are spending an hour cleaning the room that you maybe just messed up. So I love this mission. And I, I think, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about these areas that are having these extreme social shifts and social transitions. Mm -hmm. um, so are there trends that you could share with our listeners that are things that, 
um, that you talk about that keep you up at night or that you want to shout, why is everybody not looking at this stuff? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I I'm so glad that you asked. I could go on and on. Um, I think every day the newspaper offers up more statistics, like some of the ones I quoted about the rise in dual income households or the proportion of women who are in the workforce. When I think about the macro tailwinds that support our thesis, we typically put them into four buckets. And I think all four are showing really cool data points almost daily in terms of their ability to drive this infrastructure growth forward. So the four buckets are corporate activity, government activity, insurance, and consumer behavior. And I think they're all changing in ways that are really cool. So on the corporate activity side, um, I think the biggest thing that we see is continued low unemployment rate, right? The unemployment rate is still you know, under 4%, extremely tight labor market, which we have seen. Of course, the headlines grab you know, layoffs at large tech companies, but the truth is where the majority of Americans still work, um, there, there are huge shortages, right? And things like nursing and et cetera. And I think what I find exciting is that corporations and the balance of power between corporations and workers is very much a live discussion. We had more strikes last year than we've had in a very long time. And that stretches from white collar work like the writer's strike to um, you know, more hourly workers, uh, folks in Starbucks stores, folks who work for railroad companies, right? And a lot of these conversations are about better benefits. They're about paid leave in the case of the railroad strike. And these are topics that strike at the heart of corporate productivity, corporate earnings, um, and they really get the attention of corporate America. And I think this discussion around how do we build better benefits that are for everyone, not just for women, they're for men, they're for women, they're for caregivers, is really interesting. And when I see Harvard Business School professors like Joe Fuller, whose mandate is around the future of work, who was one of the founders of Monitor Group, I mean, he is not a social justice warrior. You know, Joe is a sort of dyed-in-the-wool capitalist um, who spent his whole career thinking about companies and the economy. And when he's publishing papers about the return on investment for companies to invest in caregiving, because it is a labor market issue and it's a talent acquisition and retention issue, I think there's a big tailwind there. So I think the activity on the corporate side continues to be really interesting and compelling. And I have the privilege of sitting in a lot of rooms with a lot of senior leaders on the HR side and they're all talking about worker well-being right now. And I don't think that is a trend um, or rather a short-term trend. I think it's a long-term trend. So company behavior, I think, is, is absolutely moving in this way. Second bucket is government. Um, I think there is a lot of government focus, certainly, on an aging demographic across the country. It's more than 10,000 people turn 65 every day. We know these people don't have things like long-term care insurance, um, and the government figuring out what do we need to do to rethink some of our social safety nets, some of our social services, how we serve old people, how we think about aging in place, how we think about hospital at home. Um, we're seeing some you know, pretty cool innovation and willingness to experiment, uh, certainly at the state level. So we may not see federal action on something like paid leave. That's okay. We got very close. We're seeing a lot of state activity on things like paid leave. Um, or experimenting with Medicaid. So there is definitely activity on the government side. 
On the insurer side, so when you think about who actually pays for healthcare and a lot of elements of the care economy, it's insurance companies, of course, private insurers, they're also on the hook. So if I am in an institutionalized or skilled nursing facility setting versus I'm at home being taken care of by my adult child, the cost profile to my insurance company is going to be pretty different. Mm -hmm. And so insurers are very motivated to keep me healthy and keep me at home for longer. And part of doing that means investing in the unpaid family caregivers of which there are over 40 million in the United States to make sure that they are supported, that they have resources, that they are not burnt out, that they have access to respite care, that they have access to transportation or services like wealthy. So insurance companies are very motivated to invest in this infrastructure too, because they're the ones that are catching you know, the other end of this, as we all get older and we get more expensive and we may be living longer, but we're not necessarily living healthier longer. And then the last thing, which is very cool is just consumer behavior change. Um, we have some friends that we like to collaborate with at uh, a company called The Holding Co. And they've done some great research, some of which I, I really like to quote a lot around the behavior of consumers when it comes to paying for caregiving support or paying for help with domestic chores. And it turns out that men are both more willing to pay and to outsource work around the house and also have a higher willingness to pay. So the amount per hour that they're willing to pay to outsource an hour of chores is also higher. And so I think the other interesting and fun thing is that there is probably a huge as yet untapped demand on the consumer side for building solutions for caregiving and things like laundry and chores, and, you know, when it come down to managing a household that typically women have born, they've born quietly, they've born it as the second shift unpaid, you know, in the nighttime when they get home from work. Mm-hmm. And the idea of marketing to men and saying, you know, hey, let's outsource this. Men are actually a really willing buyer if we can figure out how to talk to them directly. So I think there's, I mean, I go on and on. I just think there's such incredible tailwinds here. Um, We all see it, I think, in our personal life. If you talk to anyone one-on-one, they observe these changes. I think the mindset shift is realizing that these add up to really, really huge opportunities. You know, Courtney, it reminds me that, you know, every year a list comes out, an index list of um, the gender equity index um, around the world. And the U.S. consistently is somewhere around number 40. And so I think particularly those of, uh, of us that have been um, women executives and, and, and women leaders and balance the household and everything, we've been waiting for this this change. Um, but as you pointed out, it's it's not just about women. Like this is an everyone issue. This is this is how we are caring for our families, how we are being more effective in our modern lives and the demands of modern lives. And it's about economic productivity for these, these businesses. So I really appreciate you coming and, and sharing this information. Um, we These interviews go fast. Um, I had a couple questions that I wanted to pop back to just quickly, Courtney, so that um, you can give a shout out to uh, your managing partners and your advisors, because you don't do this all alone. You make this happen with a group of really spectacular people. So um, can you just tell us a little bit about how your your partners have come together and, and made this happen? 
A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm so glad that, to have the chance to talk about the team. Always love to brag about the team. Uh, so I founded Spring Bank with two other women, Alana Berkowitz and Jen Koss. Jen actually introduced Alana and me. Um, and Jen is still with us more in a venture partner capacity. And Alana and I run the firm day to day with huge support from uh, our associate, Brian. Uh, Brian joined us from a couple of product jobs at Health Tech Unicorns and reached out to me cold on LinkedIn worked for us nights and weekends for free for about nine months because he was so passionate about the thesis. He had been a caregiver himself to his mom uh, and then joined us full-time as soon as we were pretty sure we were going to get to a first close on the fund. Uh, and then we have a part-time head of ops whose name is Alex, uh, who has just been huge, you know, doing yeoman's work, getting the fund up and running. You know, we're a first-time fund, but we're pretty experienced people in our careers. And, you know, we take our responsibility to our investors incredibly seriously and to our companies. And so from the beginning, we've wanted to run like an institutional fund, even though we're small. Uh, and so Alex has been incredible in, in building the kind of professionalism of the fund that I think has really helped us attract incredible LPs. You know, they are our partners as much as, you know, we're doing the work. We can't do it without our investors who are trusting us with their money. And we're really lucky to be backed by, incredible venture funds like Union Square Ventures and Foundry Group, who are sort of storied VCs who teach us a ton every day. Um, big financial institutions like AIG, Bank of America, M&G, JP Morgan, um, who have also been incredible support for us and for our portfolio companies. And then kind of where it all started, like we started Spring Bank before we had a fund. We were almost like a club. That's why it's called The Collective. We reached out, Alana, me, Jen, to our friends, and we said, hey, no one's building the stuff that we know that is needed. You know it's needed, too. Why don't we invest in it? And they all came with us in the beginning. It was about 100 individuals and family offices, a lot of them women, many of them men, who kind of agreed and said, yeah, we see what you see. I want to be a customer of these things. I want to invest. And so we invested together side by side um, with those folks and uh, there's no way we would have gotten off the ground without their help, not just their investment, but their advice, their introductions for our portfolio companies. The, those collective members continue to be, you know, really like our secret weapon as we think about sourcing, diligencing, supporting and accelerating our companies. So uh, it is absolutely a groundswell effort over here. And we feel really just so proud and fortunate to do the work every day. Yeah. See, I knew you would want to tell that part of the story. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, if people want to learn more, investigate more, connect with you, where should they go and what should they do? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, find us on LinkedIn, find us on our website, springbank.vc, um, or just email me at Courtney at, at springbank.vc. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today and, and being a guest and and to our audience, if Courtney said something that you think somebody else needs to hear, pass along a copy of this episode. Of course, we always appreciate if you give us a rating. So if you haven't done that, head over to your favorite podcast platform and tell us how you think we're doing. And if there is an innovative and disruptive CEO you think we need to speak to, send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until we meet again, always keep your eye on the future. Courtney, thank you again for dropping in. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Hi, everyone. Have a great day. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. 
What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.